Welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. My guest today is Ben Martin-Henry, Head of Analytics Pacific at Real Capital Analytics. Welcome back to Australian Property Journal's uh, Talking Property podcast, Ben. Thank you very much for having me back, Nelson. It's great to be here as always. Yes, it has been a while. I mean, the last podcast we recorded was March uh, this year. So in the five months, a lot has happened in the market. We've had a share market sort of uh, downturn, the crypto <laughs> winter. Um, let's see what else. <laughs> Inflation. I, I, I know. Yeah. It's oh, been fun, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's never a dull day. Um, but you have got some interesting statistics too to show that the property market has also seen some interesting trends in the past five months or since we spoke. Absolutely. It, it definitely has been a bit of a turbulent time of late, hasn't it? Um, mm. We are seeing that come through in our, in our transaction numbers, most definitely. Um, a lot of these numbers, if you recall during COVID, I was saying that a lot of the percentage changes that I had for 2021 were just nonsense because I'm comparing 2021 figures to, to basically nothing that happened in mm. 2020. So I had these like 400% changes and 500% changes. Now we've got the complete flip side where because 2021 was such a massive year, everything looks bad now compared to that. <laughs> and I'm seeing numbers down 150% and down 200%. So we're, we're kind of in this sort of normalization period at, at the moment. And whether or not that then translates it, translates into a, a longer downturn, I think is the, is the real question. But as, as you just said, with all these mounting economic pressures and, and geopolitical issues that are per, permeating the, the, the world, um, it's entirely possible that we will start to see a, a, bit, more of a, a bit more of a prolonged slowdown. But so for, for Q2 this year, uh, we actually saw a decline of around 30 odd percent in transaction volumes. But again, right. it does need, a, does need a bit more context because Q2 last year was the strongest Q, uh, second quarter we've, we've ever had, we've ever recorded in the Real Capital Analytics, Analytics database. So we were pretty much always certain to see a slowdown compared, compared to that. I think we had about $8 billion in industrial transactions in Q2 last year, which is usually more than any given year for the sector. Mm -hmm. So the, the numbers aren't that surprising that they are slightly down on last year. I guess it was sort of like last year was that FOMO investors had been waiting hmm. and waiting during the lockdown thinking, well, what do I do? Or I'll just wait out and see. And then once we sort of, you know, the world started emerging out of lockdown, um, they thought, well, let's go and spend and <laughs> buy up real bit estate. A bit of revenge spending, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Sort of like consumers mm. as well, shopping centres. Um, so you talked about the uh, industrial, um, and I think recalling from our previous conversation, the industrial was, you know, had overtaken offices. Um, but now we're seeing that change again and offices coming back on top. Exactly. Of the core sectors, the office sector was the only one to see actual improvements compared to last year on a quarterly mm. basis and as well as a, um, an H1 basis too. Yeah, so office volumes came in around five and a half billion, which is you know about 10% up on, yeah. uh, on, last, on last year. Uh, whereas the industrial sector, it's in stark contrast, um, its quarterly volumes are down about 60%. Compared to last year, again, it's hard to compare to previous to, to last year because it was such a such a boom 
um, in numbers. And again, it's not like nobody wants to buy industrial at the moment. There still was $4 billion worth of transactions in one quarter. So again, everything does require context, uh, a little bit more context these days. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's very, very turbulent times. But I think an interesting thing for the industrial sector, and again, speaks to just how strong it has been in, in the past, is that this time last year, we actually saw 17 portfolio deals right for the industrial sector but so far we've only seen about five this year so that's a real change in uh in the industrial sector and again i don't believe it's because of a lack of appetite which is i think it's because we've seen all these all these big or so many big industrial portfolios transact that there's just not that many left out there mm. in the market to actually to actually come to the market for people to buy I suppose to the way to look at it, and I could be wrong, but is um, when the everyone was locked down and shopping online and spending, there was so much demand from the e-commerce sector for logistics mm. space, and which saw a lot of pay, players sort of going, "Oh wow, we need to increase our exposure in that sector." I mean, we saw Goodman Group post their results this uh, this week, and, and they're going strength to strength. Uh, you know, there's almost no vacancies. Um, uh. across their portfolio so it was that rush that and a lot of the companies or a lot of the players out there it was growing through acquisitions wasn't it uh, through portfolio acquisitions I should say absolutely it really was um, and I've always said that the, the best way to build scale these days is to buy scale you can get the scale <laughs> so quickly if you just pick up 3.8 mm. billion dollars worth of industrial sheds um, in one full swoop. And yeah, you're right, mm. most of them are large distribution hubs. And that's really what has been driving the industrial sector over the last few years is that move to more online spending that, you know, we have seen increases in our online retail penetration rate. And again, this wasn't caused by COVID. The, mm. That rate has been increasing for a number of years. So, um, so the industrial sector has been performing well as a result of that and before COVID struck. But as we've said m multiple times before, COVID accelerated this trend. Uh, mm. COVID has accelerated many trends, but particularly the, the industrial boom as a result of the online retail shopping. So uh, again, none of this is doom and gloom for the industrial sector at all. It is still performing extraordinarily well. It's just there's a lack of stock out there to, to buy these days because so much has already transacted. And people that bought yeah. large amounts of industrial properties two years ago aren't ready to sell them now. So we just don't have that, uh, that amount of stock coming to the, on the market anymore. And you said now also you pointed out offices um, have climbed to over $5 billion in transactions. Mm. And that goes to show, I suppose, you know, despite uh, you've no doubt you saw the recent um, office vacant, oh, sorry, office occupancy <laughs> data from mm. the property council <laughs> that showed that the return to office has somewhat stalled again. Um, but investors are not sort of taking these, these statistics and thinking, oh, I shouldn't you know, stay out of offices, there's still that demand and there's confidence in, in the office sector to invest in the office Ab sector. Absolutely. We've seen some mm. really big deals get, get done this year, um, such as uh, Commonwealth Bank Place in Sydney, for example, um, MPS yeah. out of Korea and uh, Allianz bought, uh, 50, I think it was 50% share uh, for about 610 million. And, and again, you're not going to be dropping this amount of money on, on a sector that doesn't have a future. So mm. I, I don't I don't believe investors think that the, the office sector is dead by any means. It's just a, a bit of a shake up, a bit a bit of an evolution needs to happen in, in this in the sector. And like mm. you pointed out, I know the occupancy rates still are a bit down. Um, 
I would expect that to change over time. It'll start to improve over time as, as people get to grips with this whole hybrid working and, and how their offices or how their companies are, are best to accommodate that going, going forward. But I've heard so many examples of um, offices. Actually, I was with, uh, with a client yesterday and they were saying they're actually taking out another floor because what they're finding is that when people do come together, do come back to work, they want to come together in, in, in a space, you know, a team-based working environment or an event-based working environment. So they're actually taking out, they, so they have an option of taking out desks and making more breakout spaces or leasing another part of the building to accommodate that. And that's, again, that's kind of a trend that we've seen with some companies that they are, in order to bring people back to work, they, they're making it a bit more of a team environment so yes. again, that need that leads to more space being being needed. So I still think there's a lot of there's a lot of discussions that need to take place, and there's a lot of routes that companies can go down in order to accommodate this new this new uh, this new hybrid working. And I think investors, it, well, it appears to me that investors are, are kind of banking on the fact that everyone eventually is going to work out how best to accommodate this new this new style of working, and they're still going to need they're still going to need offices, and therefore they're still mm. going to. Uh, there's still going to be demand for for office space, which, which in turn is going to drive demand for people buying offices as well. Absolutely, and we've talked about this in the past in previous podcasts, where even if you know you had a four day working week, it still doesn't result in that much reduction in office uh, footprint or office demand uh, ultimately. Um, now, Absolutely. I want to talk about yeah, <laughs> I want to talk about the players or the who were the big players in the market in the in, in the court during the quarter. Um, who were the biggest sellers and buyers, or, or were they foreign or domestic players, private family offices? What? Who are they? Everyone, all of them, <laughs> all of them, absolutely. Uh, we saw again offshore and offshore capital is is always attracted to Australia, um, so we mm. saw a, a strong amount of investment this quarter as well, um, mostly from Singaporeans and, and US, as is as is quite normal. They're generally our largest sources of off, offshore capital. In any given year, I still kind of duke it out for who's number one Singapore, US. So it gets it gets close some years. Um, yes, I imagine that this year is going to be very very similar. And those guys, you know, the likes of Blackstone and GIC, they're the, they're the big movers at the, at the moment uh, in mm. Australia for sure. Um, European capital is still pretty quiet. We don't see it. We just ha- haven't really had a lot of European capital come to come to Australia in recent years. Um, obviously, there's a lot of geopolitical turmoil going over there at the moment. So I imagine they're they're focusing on different areas. So I can't imagine we'll see a heap more um, investors from Europe coming to Australia this year. Um, and what they're looking at is still offers in that industrial space. They tend not to touch retail too much. Although GIC mm. have made a number of retail acquisitions this year, which is um, uh, it's slightly surprising for, for offshore offshore buyers to go into the um, the retail sector. But it's, uh, they might be diversifying. But they certainly have spent um, spent a fair bit here. Um, I think just one thing that we have noticed. Generally, offshore buyers pick up big big assets, um, right. such as hotels. They're always looking for those those large uh, trophy assets, and hotels uh, are certainly one. But they generally they definitely focus on the bigger end of town, and it's the bigger end of town that we've seen has really kept volumes relatively stable so far this year on a on a, a six month basis. What but what we're really seeing is a slowdown in those smaller deals take place. So the number of smaller deals, so deals between sort of one in ten million. They're right. down around 30% compared to this time last year, and deals between 10 and 100 million. 
Well, I suspect it is. It's I suspect it is um, a sign of the times, really. As as mm. we know, um, since well, since we last talked, we've had a heap of interest rate rises. Yes, um, that's a, right. Quite, quite, quite a lot. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> um, and that will feed into the cost of debt, of course. And I think that's the major issue at the moment for these smaller players. Where with the smaller guys, they don't have that vast pool of investors. They've got you know the one or two, and their main source of capital. Um, prices are too prohibitively expensive for them. They unfortunately have to walk away from the deal because they can't mm. get the funding. They don't have a limitless pool. Of, they have a limited pool of funding. And this is not a trend that is specific to Australia either, which again is a bit of a warning sign for the market. You know, the canary in the coal mine is we're seeing this trend across all major markets. Same in the US, same in the UK, same in Europe. It's the smaller deals that are, that are drying up at the moment. So again, mm. a bit of a warning sign that potentially something more nefarious could be coming down the line is as generally when smaller deals dry up, it means the economy is on a bit of a teetering point and we you know, could go one way or the other. So it's definitely something we're, we're looking out for at the moment. But by and large, like I, like I said before, the, the offshore investors, they stick it to the larger deal ticket size. Mm. And you were just uh, about to say earlier that um, the others uh, in the other sort of uh, market segments too, you mentioned, I think that between the 50s and 100 million as well. Well, what we were seeing there? Um, 50 to 100 million. Again, a mm. slight downturn compared to last year. Mm. Um, it really is only the $250 million and above bracket that's seen any kind of growth. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not limited to any one sector. All sectors are seeing the same trend where it's those smaller deals that are, that are really drying up. Even in the industrial sector, it's only mm -hmm. the big deals that seem to be getting getting done. Um, so it's not unique to any other in it to any sector. It's it's hurting all all sectors at the moment. Mm. Now we're talking all sectors, so we've covered office and industrial. So we have to talk about, I suppose, retail. <laughs> Next, mm. <laughs> um, what's happening there? There. there. Uh, in terms of transactions and and uh, and interest in the different classes, you know, sub-regionals, neighbourhoods, CBDs. Yeah, it's a, it's mm. a bit of a change. I mean, as, as you know, I've been a big proponent of retail for the last couple of years now because the relative value of retail has been has been fantastic because of this um, the, the severe declines that we saw in 2020 mm. as a result, obviously, of you know non-essential retail services being being shut down suddenly the value of these assets fell significantly. And last year we saw so much investment in the retail sector by investors because they're like, well, actually this is, this is pretty cheap now. This is a pretty good deal. So let's pile back <laughs> in. But of course, there's always, a, it's, a, it's a cycle. There's always going to be a bit of a slowdown. So what I'm, what I'm saying that retail is normalizing. I don't want to be too harsh on retail. So I'm just saying the sector is normalizing. And I have a couple of charts that I, that I show at the moment why I just compare average sales in, in 2017 to 2019 mm. um, and then plot the sales we saw last year and then sales we saw this year. And most of these subsectors, they have a, they have a V, an upside down V shape, meaning mm. we're coming back to more medium term averages for some of these sectors. So if you think of last year, we saw a big box retail, you know, the, the Bunnings and large format retail, you know, as homemaker centers absolutely boomed last year because there were various things like homeowner grants, people were going out and buying office chairs and desks and stuff for their, for their working from home setup. So we saw these, these particular subtypes really, really boom. But again, that started to slow down again, and we're seeing a bit more of a normalization. 
And on the flip side, those largest shopping centres, which were all, again, shut down across the major markets in Australia because of lockdowns, nobody was touching them. They, were, they weren't seeing a lot of activity last year because, again, people just... We were we just weren't um, we just weren't able to go to them, so investors didn't pick them up. But now mm. we're starting to see a lot of activity in the regional and and the the major regional shopping centres. So that that is an actual V shape. So again, I just think it's a bit more of a normalising of, of retail at the moment. How that how long that lasts, I guess, is is the question, because obviously with you know inflation, of, I'm not even sure what it is today, six and a half percent or whatever, and, and expected to increase. Um, mm. that obviously hurts people's wallets because they're suddenly having to pay more for basic necessities. So mm. uh, I think retail is going to be in for a few more turbulent years, unfortunately. Real Capital Analytics is the authority on property deals, the players and the trends that drive the commercial real estate investment markets. Having recorded over $20 trillion of commercial transactions, data is at the forefront of RCA's business. Yeah, it's quite interesting what's happening in, in the retail sector. I, I actually went to a shopping center recently and noticed that they've now taken out more shops and put in more uh, space for people to, a market space, sorry, and, and where there's food and things like that. So they, mm. the, the, it's, that, that tenancy mix is continually changing. Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, and, and it's in, quite interesting too, again, that the CBD retail uh, in Melbourne or where I am in Melbourne is just booming, uh, particularly nightlife restaurants. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I've had, we so, have had this discussion with many people from Melbourne. You can't yes. get a restaurant booking. You can't get into a pub at night. Nobody goes yes. to work, but all the bars are full. <laughs> it's, it's, it's because we're working from, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the new collaborative working is uh finding yeah, the pub. pub. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. We don't, yeah. It's very different to Sydney because in Sydney, we, there's, I think occupancy rates in Sydney are, are significantly higher than in Melbourne, um, mm. but nobody goes out at night. So it's, it's very, very different <laughs> at the moment. We have a real bifurcation at the moment between our two larger cities. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, yeah, in Melbourne, it is difficult. I, I had to, you know, one of the famous pasta places around here, I think I had to book like three weeks out or something like that. But you know oh, what wow. the good thing is is the good thing is though when it first when lockdown first finished in uh, sorry first came to an end in Melbourne to get on the golf course was like eight weeks wait. <laughs> I was I'm not surprised. I, yes, but now it's normalized. <laughs> yeah. Now you can book good. Yeah, it, you can book it. But anyway, we can go on about that. Um well, I guess I that's just why wanna, we've yeah. seen so much activity in the pubs in the pub sector as well this year. You know, we've, yes. it's, an, it's it continues to boom. Last year was an enormous year with a, nigh on two and a half billion dollars worth of, of of pubs transacting, and this mm. year again we've had around one and a half, pushing two billion already, mm. um, of pub transactions. And again, I think investors are looking at this whole revenge spending aspect that people are sick of lockdown. They feel like their life has been on hiatus for two years, and they're all going out. As Melbourne can certainly attest to, going out, going to restaurants, going to pubs. And investors are going, hang on, let's jump on this bandwagon. Let's start picking up more pubs as well to really take mm. advantage of that that whole revenge spending aspect. So it is it is quite a it's it's quite a, it's quite a strong sector at the moment. And, and again, I, I think it's going to continue as um, continue to be well favoured by by investors. 
Now, speaking of obviously pubs, you know, it's still classified in in the alternative space. Uh, mm. We put that in quote marks. Um, yeah. What other <laughs> what other alternative sectors? Uh, what what's happening there in the apartments in the you know built to rent space, student like accommodation, aged care? What's happening in all the others? Yeah, I always have to be careful about what I term alternative, not so as not to offend anybody. I don't. I know this is this is bread and butter for for so many investors. I'm like, guys, this is just what we have classified it as. It's not. It doesn't. Mean it's always been office, odd. retail, and industrial. That's how it's always been. I know. That's that's what yeah. that's what's classified as core. I don't control the the world's lexicon, but this is just where where it sits. But what we yes. use as, as alternatives are, you know, pub, student housing, etc. Mm. And student housing, interestingly, actually had, has had quite a strong year so far, which I was a mm-hmm. little bit surprised about considering how much, um, considering the size of the escape urbanist deal that was done in 20 in 2020, there's just not that much on the, on, uh, on the market anymore. The GIC um, threw a, a, decent, a decent chunk of um, change at uh, student housing portfolio this year. Uh, mm. which is good to see. So that's that's certainly growing, a massive uptick compared to compared to last year, of course. Um, the childcare sector, it's still seeing a fair bit of activity. Uh, but as we've discussed before, childcare, it's such a small sector at the moment. It's it's not seeing a lot of institutional capital, uh, which generally means you, their uh, individual assets that they buy, they're buying a small $5 million one here and a small $5 million one there, as opposed mm. to the big chunky portfolios that we see in the other sectors. So that's going to be a, an alternative sector. It's going to slowly grow until somebody builds, build, buys enough scale. Mm. You see another another big institution come in and drop $500 million on it and, and, uh, and pick up an entire portfolio. So again, a bit of a slow burn in that one. Um, what other fun ones have we got? Service stations, it's always a fun Medical one. Medical centers. Um, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Service stations, a bit of a slowdown. Um, they really boomed during, over the last couple of years because of that, convenience retail aspect you know, yes. so many service stations have you know little woolies or little coals attached to them now so that's really that's what's really been driving uh, investor appetite in that space um but again we've had a couple of big portfolio deals over the last couple of years in that in that sector so not a, not a heap of activity so far this year medicals it's just a fascinating one um not not least because classifying it is is tricky you know people think mm. anything that has like a you know, uh, Johnson Johnson as a tenant, for example, that's definitely medical office. I'm like, well, no, <laughs> it has to have some some kind of you know clinical trials or labs or whatever for it to actually be to be classified mm. in the healthcare sector. But it's still a lot of activity in that medical space. Um, and looking at some of our recent performance indicators, that healthcare sector has been performing almost as well as the industrial sector, which wow. considering how impressive yeah. the industrial performance has been for a while. Um, that is that is good to see, and I was I was speaking to someone today about that actually, and um, they they gave me a different take on it because there's so uh, few big hospitals, for example, that you can buy out mm-hmm. there. When it's on the market, people throw money in it. They just want to grab it. They want to get it as soon as possible, and that'll obviously increase the, the value of it. And as we know, that's what drives overall performance is that change in in mm-hmm. value. And we've really seen that come through in the healthcare space. It has been has been booming for 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 a number of years now. So I would expect continued investment in that sector. Again, it's just hard to get your get your hands on it. I'm afraid. Yes. Well, I I think hospitals are, in a way, see uh, from my thinking, they're kind of like infrastructure. It's difficult to get them approved. You're going to have to build them. It's it's you know it's very high specifics, 
high specification, sorry. And mm. I remember sitting in a, a, a um, conference where the super funds were presenting. And they were saying, oh, we love buying infrastructure because you can only have one port. You can only have one airport. Um, <laughs> and so I kind of see like, you know, if, if, it, if it's a major hospital um, around the corner, currently the state government's building one, um, yeah, it, I just don't see how you can just keep propping hospitals up all over the place um, to um, yeah. to satisfy the demand. So, and of course, yeah. we've got an aging population that keeps requiring more and more um, medical um, needs. Absolutely, yeah, we yeah. we definitely have an aging population. This is an issue we've seen globally as well. That we just there's just a need for more healthcare in general, mm. and you know, surely surely what's happened in recent years with this pandemic has just kind of firmed that view amongst people that we need more healthcare space. Mm. You know, we were, we were told that the reason for being locked down is that so we don't put too much pressure on the health system. Okay. Right. Yeah. No, no, no issue there, but that means mm. perhaps we need more healthcare. Mm. Um, mm. It's also something you, you touched on before aging, aging populations. It means that we need more senior housing and care. Yes. And that's, that's a sector that, we don't classify in Australia as core, but it certainly is classified as core in a lot of other major markets across the world. It is an enormous uh, investment class in that season, senior housing space. We just don't have mm. a lot of it down here. And what, what we do see is, is um, funds such as Aware Super picking up um, shares in yes. uh, Lend Lease's senior housing fund. I think that's how that sector is going to develop for the next couple of years is we're going to see these guys pick up chunks. Um, of, of various funds because they, they want the exposure to it, but the running of it is obviously a, a completely different beast and not something they're used to, but they, they want that exposure and those healthy, safe returns from those mm. sectors. But until they learn how to how to do it themselves or set up their own management, um, um, I think they're, they're just going to invest in in portfolios. Um, and it's it certainly is growing in Australia, but it's kind of like childcare. It is a very slow, slow burn at the moment. Um, so mm. I'm interested to see how that does develop. And we haven't seen too much this year as yet in that senior housing space, just a couple of a couple of small deals. So the volumes are still less than around a billion dollars, probably around a billion dollars for the year. So still quite, mm. quite limited. Now, the topic that everyone loves, it's uh, apartments and build to rent. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. I'm saving this one. So um, <laughs> currently there is just, uh, from all the discussions from developers, there's just, you know, projects have been postponed because of the rising uh, cost of building materials um, yes. and labor shortages. So apartments, um, but there's still demand for it because we need housing. As you can tell, vacancy rates in across the major cities oh. are sub 1%. 1%. Um, mm. So what's happening there and also what's happening in the build to rent space? Well, it's yeah, it's extraordinarily tight. We also we we do track construction starts and mm -hmm. uh, so new builds. So as soon as somebody breaks ground, that's when we track it, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to development approvals and, and the likes. So it's really is looking at exactly what is being built as of right now. Every sector is way down compared mm -hmm. to last year. You know, down sixty seventy percent compared wow. to last year. And it's like it's those things you just touched upon. It's the cost of construction is extraordinarily high. The cost of materials, the cost of labor. Then they came out the other day saying unemployment is the lowest it's ever been. Yes. Um, so it's getting people to, you know, to have time to actually do this. And then, of course, because they're so busy, they can charge higher prices, which again impacts the overall um, cost of the of the business. So people, as you say, they are just pulling away from from deals. They are having to, to stall. 
um, mm. on, um, on on starting and, and construction. So it is a, it is a bit of a concern at the moment is that construction industry. And I think again I read something today that another Queensland firm has uh, another Queensland yes. developer unfortunately has gone into administration. It just seems mm. to be a daily occurrence at the moment. It is um, and. And like you said, it is hitting that residential sector the hardest. And that is a real concern when, as you rightly pointed out, we need more residential space for people mm-hmm. because vacancy mm-hmm. rates are extraordinarily low and supply is just going to get um, further and further diminished because unfortunately these companies are going are going broke, which is, yeah, it's... Uh, it's and then we talk about... It's going to develop. Yeah, and then we talk about, you know, uh, with how to combat this labour shortage is through migration so how do we bring more people in when we can't house people right now or in the existing yes existing population the challenge is certainly there for our policy yeah our policy makers and the politicians have to start um thinking about it if they're going to bring people in where are we going to house them vacancies are under one (laughs) percent yeah Yeah, no you're right and rents are going through the roof i saw i was at an event last night and they were showing look rents are going sort of 18 19 percent are growing 18 19 percent in our major markets and like that's 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 pretty tough and people are doing it tough at the moment as well because of high inflation and unfortunately Mm. inflation is not on you know those discretionary products like a new car or whatever that's it's not inflation isn't too high on them it's on non-discretionary goods food electricity it's pretty hard to cut down on that kind of stuff but unfortunately, Absolutely. people are having ha- having to do that, um, and the cost of housing increasing is just putting a further dent in people's ability to 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 meet these costs. Mm-hmm. So it is, um, yeah. There's a lot of pressure points in um, across a variety of a variety of sectors. No no individual sectors getting away, getting off scot free at the moment. They're all kind of getting squeezed in in, in various ways. Um, so this is why I think we're kind of at this. This kind of stall moment where I think a lot of investors are adopting a wait and see approach and just going, oh, let's see what happens with with all this stuff. You know, is inflation going to come under control again? And there's then that will impact obviously the the rate rises, which will slow down the increases in the cost of debt. And once we kind of know what's going to happen or have a better idea about what's going to happen, then maybe we'll we'll pull the trigger on deals mm-hmm. and, and and continue the cycle. So we're definitely at this kind of moment where it's like, oh, which way are we going to go? Kind of riding that crest of the wave? Are we going to go down or is this going to continue on in a nice, nice, lovely, flat trajectory, but not, not a downturn trajectory? Real Capital Analytics is the authority on property deals, the players and the trends that drive the commercial real estate investment markets. Having recorded over $20 trillion of commercial transactions, data is at the forefront of RCA's business. Mm. And now I want to um, look at the built-to-rent space. So obviously the, the, this week, Blackstone announced they've established Realm Australia, which is going to be their dedicated built-to-rent business in, in Oz. Um, mm. I, I think also a lot of people were hoping that with the new government that, well, that's actually, yes, since our last podcast, we have a new government. <laughs> so um, Has it been that long? That, oh, gosh. Yeah, it's been that long, yeah. So <laughs> much is happening. It is, it is. Um, that the new government might change the uh, managed investment tax. Um, and of course, the New Zealand government's gone one better on us. They've uh, this week updated their tax and given uh, developers tax breaks for build to rent. So, um, what does it. Well, we show- can't have New Zealand be more progressive than us. That's exactly. just not on. We, you know, that's, just, that's just not right. We, healthy competition is good. And that sounds like a, that sounds like a challenge. Um, I, think, I think our governments will have to start looking at, uh, at sort of the tax arrangements for built to rent in Australia as, as well. But that, hasn't, um, but that hasn't stopped the demand coming in. 
No, no, it it certainly hasn't. So the whole issue mm. with MIT is that you're not allowed to hold um, built to rent under a managed investment trust. And the reason mm. that offshore investors use managed investment trusts is because then they they don't have to pay that 30% withholding tax. It's effectively an income tax. They only mm. pay 15. But if you can't hold it in there, you're paying 30. So effectively, mm. the tax bill on a built to rent development or a built to rent asset is double. It's, mm. it's going to be on a on the office and industrial. So that's that's the issue with that one. But as you rightly pointed out, it hasn't stopped. We, I'm sure it has slowed it down, but it hasn't stopped um, overseas capital investing in, in, in built-to-rent um, projects. I, I think when I used to do this at another company, most around 60 to 65% of all deals were funded by offshore capital. Not entirely sure mm. what, what that is this, these days, um, but again, the, the, the tax regime hasn't changed. So mm. the issues are still there. So it's no different from three years ago. So I'm, I'm sure we are still seeing a healthy level of investment from offshore capital mm. into that space. Um, and speaking to some of the major valuers in this sector the other week, they're saying that there's around 40 to 45,000 units at various wow. stages of application and construction. Some are under construction, some have completed in the last 12 months, and some uh, have uh, DAs already already approved. So 40,000 units, that's, that's a fair... Yeah, it's tiny, obviously, compared to what mm. we what we need, but it's mm. it's it's growing. It's certainly growing. Um, and if you look across the the, the world, um, our numbers out of the US show that multifamily was the largest sector by a long way last year mm. um, for the US, for, for Germany, um, and it's certain that the trend UK, has continued. Yeah. Yeah, the UK is certainly growing. That that trend certainly mm. has continued, and I think. Um, it was also the most stable asset class in terms of rent collection as well mm. over the last couple of years. So again, arguably, in, you know, in good times, people need places to live. In bad times, people they need, places, need to live. places to live. People, yeah, yeah, people are always going to need places to live. And I think investors mm. down here that they understand that it's it's very resilient to to shocks, um, mm. but there are just a few issues around those tax regimes and a lack of understanding. Perhaps maybe there still needs to be a bit more education on how the how the whole thing works. Mm. Um, but it hasn't stopped a number of the larger, larger developers in space, such as you know, Greystar, obviously. Verbeck um, mm. is certainly forging ahead, and I know this new company is forging ahead. So still, is there's a fair amount of activity in the in in the sector, which is which is great because we do have affordability issues here. We have um, a lack of uh, a lack of uh, rental accommodation across most markets, by the sounds of it. If we look at those vacancy rates, so anything mm. to improve that, I think, will be will be fantastic and. Again, investors are pretty good at noticing what what uh, what there is a need for mm. uh, in the market, and will therefore give them strong strong returns. Well, I, I think you know it broadens the housing choices out there for for people. And I was um, yeah, I, I was talking to a an agent uh, earlier last uh, sorry last week, and um, just about build to rent, and I said, oh, you know the. In America or in the US, um, you know, we so far have seen built to rent. It's mostly apartments and high, high, high rise uh, units. Mm. But in the US, they're mostly single dwellings or, or sort of medium density type. Oh, and he yeah, said that's absolutely. quite interesting. You said that because he said we've had built to rent developers now inquiring about uh, state type or, or, or master plan community type developments uh. in Melbourne's uh, middle suburbs like Tarnit. Um, Point Cook uh, in the Wyndham Vale area, so it's quite interesting now that the um, built-to-rent developers are looking at master plan communities in Australia. Yeah, from what this agent yeah. has told me. Mm. 
And no, I'm sure he's right. It, it's there's this massive misconception that, that it's all high rise, multifamily. <laughs> it's high rise. Yeah. It's just not true. Seventy percent mm. of all multifamily in the U.S. is under three stories. Yes. So it's it's not huge towers. It's just large towers of what we're seeing here at the moment. Really, they're, they're some of the first yes. plans. But if mm. you look at some of the already established um, build trend developments, such as Element Twenty Seven out in Subiaco in, in Perth. It's called mm. 27 for a reason. There's, there's 27. There's, there's 27 <laughs> units. So it's, yes. not, it's not a massive, it's not a huge tower. But of course, there, mm. are, there are benefits of, of, of building large towers. You get uh, terrific economies of scale if you have 200, 300 units. So that's mm. why people are looking at, at, at doing that um, mm. as a starting point as opposed to big, big master planned areas. But by sounds mm. like it's happening, so that, that's great. And again, it's... Mm. it's uh, you can't pigeonhole the residential sector. Well, no, absolutely. Mm. Built around, it's just residential. That's all it is. It is residential. It's just done a different way. So mm. we have big houses, small houses, bungalows, three-story houses, four-story houses, one-story, you know, heaps of different types of residential. There's no just, we're just going to build a big block of units. There's <laughs> heaps of different ways you can do it. Whatever you have a site for, whatever you think is going to work and whatever you think is, uh, fits best within that local community, that's what mm. you do. Mm. Now, Ben, I um, wanted to look at, uh, you know, the, uh, forecasting, <laughs> which, which, which <laughs> we never know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but I'm just, or, or, or not forecasting, how should we put it? Uh, what, what, what we think is going to happen in the market going forward. We've got, you know, interest rates going up, um, uh, bond yields um, that are also going up. Will that start to impact the investment market in the, uh, you know, because obviously, if bond yields go up, they might start competing with the uh, with the uh, commercial assets. Yeah, so there's there's always this discussion about um, the the relationship that, between bond yields and property yields, and there's many schools mm -hmm. of thoughts. And I'm I'm not going to um, disprove one or the other here. I'm just saying mm -hmm. that from what our global researchers have done, there's a pretty low correlation between bond yields and property yields. It's about an 11 okay. percent correlation, mm -hmm. but you can't look at anything in isolation these days. There's so many factors that, that in, in, in impact things. Now, we know that property tracks the, the GDP extremely strongly. It generally predicts what's going to happen as well. If there's a slowdown in property performance, it generally means there's going to be a slowdown in economic performance. So, that's, so that tracks a lot closer than, than, than um, bond yields. But again, bond yields rise in, in pressure points. When there's a slowdown mm. in the economy or interest, rate, interest rates rise, that impacts bond yields. So when interest rates go up, cost of debt goes up. That'll impact mm. property yields because people can no longer afford to spend as much as they possibly would previously mm. because their cost of debt is so much higher. So we have started to see not a slowdown, not a, not a decline, sorry, um, more a slowdown in the pace of compression. It's hard to, mm. it's hard to say there's no decline. It's merely slowing down. So the rate of compression is slowing down and it is going to be driven by factors such as you know, a squeezing of that risk-free rate, bond yields are, um, are increasing, although they have come down again. So it was interesting, wasn't it, that just around the last time we talked, that was that we're starting to talk about interest rate rises. Yes. Um, and it seems like the market have priced that into bond to bond yields, and they jumped up to 3.8, 3.9%. But they've come down again. They've That sharp shock has kind of, I think people um, overshot that mark. They go, oh, hang on, it's not that, it's not that bad. Let's, let's bring it down again. So we've seen bond yields kind of fall back to the low threes, I think it is. So there still is that healthy margin between um, property yields and bond yields. It's just not as high as it was, say, six, uh, say um, 12 months ago. 
Um, mm. And that will certainly impact again, it impact that cost of debt, which will then definitely impact um, pricing that people are willing to pay for, for properties. Um, and it's also uh, who's, who's actually looking at properties too. I haven't heard of too many deals being pulled from the market because nobody wants to buy them. I don't think that's the case. It's certainly not mm. um, prevalent, but the actual, the buyer pool certainly has shrunk considerably. So whereas 12 months ago, you may have had 15 to 20 underbidders on a given asset. Now we're looking at much less than that, say five underbidders on assets. Mm -hmm. And again, without that competitive stress put on, on uh, being put on prices, you won't see strong price increases as a result of a um, lesser demand. Mm. Well, that was a very interesting way of putting it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's a great way to uh, uh, end the um, our discussion. Um, now, I actually just thought about this and I probably uh, should have raised it up earlier when we talk about alternative real estate asset, uh, alternative real estate classes. What about golf course properties? <laughs> oh, look, the fence, fence. Well, yeah. I would love to have a golf course, as you well know. Um, yes. I don't know how great investments uh, golf courses are. Every golf club is actually, I think I constantly saw, struggling. I I've seen one report a while ago that said that properties that were on golf courses tend to perform better. And then I also saw a report just came out last week that said waterfront properties perform better than everything. So yeah, there you go. Oh yeah. I well, I, yeah. I, yeah, you have a lovely view if you're back onto a golf course. I mean, you may get the odd golf ball through the window, depending if you're playing, but I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> for me, if I'm playing, you'll nice definitely get, end up in your backyard. <laughs> you have lovely, lovely greenery, open spaces. I think that'd be a wonderful investment. And you can um, sneak out, sneak on the course. Uh, absolutely practice your, practice your no. chipping yeah yeah no, for exactly. sure <laughs> i'm not sure how well golf courses perform though i, I as i said yeah, every club i'm a member of is apparently always yeah. struggling for, for for cash um <laughs> i've heard many people say many times never trust a businessman who owns golf course because golf courses because they don't know how to make money they're buying golf courses okay I, I, again i i don't know um yeah it's not something it's not something we track in the uh in the real capital analytics database. maybe I'll, yeah maybe i'll ask yeah. i don't i don't see heaps <laughs> heaps transacting but maybe i'll um maybe i'll raise it with our data team and say guys i know you're busy but can you now yes, track i know another, very busy yeah. there's a lot of turmoil there's <laughs> yes. turmoil in the market but there's mm, something i have know, another alternative Let's, oh, let's forget pumps for a while. Let's go buy some more get, in, input some more golf courses, please. It's just you know yeah, it's another alternative sector. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Uh, let's have meetings on the golf course instead. Yeah. Well you get my you maybe go. we can record our we can record our next podcast from a from a golf course. Maybe oh, we, we have that. to live stream it even maybe. Anyway. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me again, Ben. It was a pleasure to have you as our regular guest now on APJ Anytime. Have a Anytime. nice day. Thank you. You too.